Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode John Gee Comes Clean. Today's date is August 18th, 2020. And just last Friday night, an interview was posted on YouTube at Book of Mormon Central. It is an interview with John Gee, professor of Egyptology at Brigham Young University. This interview was pointed out to me by some friends of mine, and I was able to listen to it on Saturday evening, less than a day after it first appeared on the internet. And I was frankly astonished at what it was that I heard John Gee saying. This has to do with what has long been considered a proof of the authenticity of the Book of Abraham, and that proof being the name Olishem as a place name that occurs in the Book of Abraham in chapter 1, verse 10, and an actual location, a physical location in the Old World named not quite Olishem, but Ulisum. You have to do a few linguistic gymnastics in order to get Olishem to match Ulisum. But once you've done that, you have an actual name for a physical location, as recorded in the Book of Abraham, matching an actual physical location in the ancient world. This proposal first appeared in print, to my knowledge, back in 1985 in a collection of papers titled Studies in the Scripture on the Pearl of Great Price. I actually bought that book and still have it in my possession, though it's in storage now. I cannot access it. But it was there that an author other than John Gee first pointed this out. He was a Latter-day Saint. His name was John M. Lundquist. He was not an Egyptologist, but he was an archaeologist. And that is where he published his article, situating the Book of Abraham in a plausible... Plausible? Well, we'll get to that later. Right now, I'm actually reading from the article, The Plain of Olishem, on the Pearl of Great Price Central website, where they say it is a plausible ancient geographical and cultural environment in northern Mesopotamia. The reason this interview from John Gee last Friday night that appeared on Book of Mormon Central as basically an advertisement for the up-and-coming Pearl of Great Price Central website is that John Gee in that interview actually stated he did not think that the location, the current location or locations that are being argued about among various scholars for the location of Ulisum is actually the correct location. Yes, that's what he says, and he says it twice, and I will play the tape of it for you so that you can hear it with your own ears. But as I say, since 1985, when this possibility was first pointed out by John M. Lundquist, it has been repeated and repeated numerous times by numerous Mormon apologists, perhaps chief among those being John Gee as a proof or potential proof of the Book of Abraham. For example, Daniel Peterson, professor of Islamic studies at BYU, wrote an article for the Deseret News that was published on July 26, 2012, titled, How Could Joseph Know All of This? And there, in that 2012 article, Professor Peterson writes the following, Critics frequently attack the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, but it receives intriguing support from ancient documents found during the past two centuries. For instance, number one on Daniel C. Peterson's list of support that the Book of Abraham receives from ancient documents is Olishem. For instance, it describes the plain of Olishem. That's chapter 1, verse 10 of the Book of Abraham. For instance, the Book of Abraham describes the plain of Olishem, apparently in the land of Chaldea. The Bible mentions no such place, but the name occurs in an inscription dating to about 2250 B.C., and pointing, quite correctly, to northwestern 
Syria. That's what Daniel C. Peterson writes. So he echoes this proof of the book of Abraham relating to the plain of Olishem in very strong terms. On February 10th, 2016, Michael Ash repeated this same argument in an interview with Julianne Hatton at Fair Mormon. This is the interview titled Faith and Reason, 64, Ur and Olishem. Michael Ash says the following, and here I'm going from the show notes. Recent scholarship suggests that Ur might have been in northern Syria and southern Turkey. We'll get to the problem with Ur here in a second because it directly relates to the issue of Olishem. Recent scholarship suggests that Ur might have been in northern Syria and southern Turkey in a place known anciently as Aram Naraim, which he says is in northwestern Mesopotamia in ancient times. Not coincidentally, he writes, not coincidentally, ancient Aram Naharim was under the influence of Egypt during the days of Abraham. An added layer of support comes from the book of Abraham's mention of the plain of Olishem, which apparently was a part of the land of Chaldea. While the Bible never mentions such a place, scholars have recently discovered an inscription of the name Olishem dating to about 2250 BC in northwestern Syria, just where we would expect to find it according to Joseph Smith. Now, this is already a bit misleading because actually the inscription of the name Olishem is not found. It is the inscription of the name Ulisum, which is found, dating to about 2250 BC in northwestern Syria. In addition to Daniel C. Peterson, who does bring it up with some frequency, as I've cited here in this Deseret News article from 2012, and also in addition to Michael Ash, who also brings it up with some frequency when talking about the Book of Abraham, John Gee has not been remiss in bringing up Olishem as a proof of the Book of Abraham. In fact, whenever he's asked about what the strongest evidence is that the Book of Abraham is ancient, he is usually quick to bring out the example of Olishem. Indeed, in the church essay on the translation of the book of Abraham, Olishem is once again put forward as a proof of the truth of the book of Abraham. Now, we know that John Gee was responsible for putting that proof in the essay on the book of Abraham on the church website. We know this because of my interview with Brian Hauglid, who was also on the same committee along with John Gee. And Brian Hauglid told us that John Gee insisted on putting those types of proofs into the essay even over the objection of Brian Hauglid. And Olishem shows up as one of these proofs that John Gee insisted be put in the church essay. You can find this, of course, on the church website. The name of the essay is Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham. It was published in 2014. It is still up on the church website. And here's what it says about Olishem as a proof of the Book of Abraham. If you scroll down in that essay to the subsection toward the bottom called The Book of Abraham and the Ancient World... The start of the third paragraph down, here's what we find. The book of Abraham contains other details that are consistent with modern discoveries about the ancient world. The book speaks of the plain of Olishem, a name not mentioned in the Bible. An ancient inscription, not discovered and translated until the 20th century, mentions a town called Ulisum, at least they get the name right there, mentions a town called Ulisum located in northwestern Syria. There's a footnote there for that statement. It's footnote 37. We click that footnote and it takes us, not surprisingly, to an article written by John Gee. And that is his article published in 2013 with the Journal of the Book of Mormon and Other Restoration Scriptures titled, Has Olishem Been Discovered? 
There, John Gee says it is promising but not proven in his conclusion. So in the very article that was written the year before, 2013, by John Gee, where he concludes that this idea of Book of Mormon Olisham being the same as Old World Ulisum is promising but not proven, it nevertheless is used as a footnote to support the statement in the essay, which sounds a lot more proven than just promising. Once again, here's the statement in the essay. The Book of Abraham contains other details that are consistent with modern discoveries about the ancient world. The book speaks of the Plain of Olishem, a name not mentioned in the Bible. An inscription not discovered and translated until the 20th century. See, the implication is there. How could Joseph Smith have known it wasn't translated or published until after his death? Mentions a town called Ulisum, located in northwestern Syria. More recently, on July 30th of 2020, so this is just a couple of weeks ago, John Gee was interviewed by Hannah Syriac on the podcast titled Fair Voice. Hannah asks John Gee, what are the best evidences for the ancientness and authenticity of the book of Abraham? And once again, John Gee pulls out Olishem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree that the dating of it is important. Um, my follow-up question to that is what corroborations do you have from that specific time period that you think are the strongest evidences for the book of Abraham? Part of the reason we're doing this is a lot of people are kind of disgruntled about the Howglid article and are feeling like the book of Abraham might not be historical. So we'd like to just hear your perspective on how you uh, came to There's a, that. a large number of them. Now, in this interview, John Gee does him and haw a bit about Olishem as a proof of the book of Abraham. He doesn't say it's not a proof. All he says is that scholars are arguing amongst themselves as to what the correct location is of the ancient city Ulisum, but that he still thinks it's impressive as an evidence for the book of Abraham. That's his word, impressive. Uh, then we have the, you have a, a place name in the book of Abraham that it doesn't show up in the Bible, but it does show up in a Rimson inscription. And just this year, earlier this year, a new attestation of that name, Olishem, showed up in an inscription that was just barely published. Um, and there is a tremendous debate in the scholarly literature about where this is located and what's it significant, and is it related to this or that other place? And I'm aware of that, but I'm, I've tried largely to, um, at this point, put too much weight on, a, on the exact location of that place because it is so disputed and it hasn't cleared up. Uh, and, but it is the fact that they're proposing concrete archaeological sites for this location tells you uh, that this is being taken as a real place. And it's not something, and, and again, it was 100 years after Joseph Smith before this any inscriptions really come to light. Or nearly 100 years later. So once again, that's John Gee using Olishem as an evidence for the Book of Abraham in an interview that was published as recently as last month, the end of last month on July 30th, 2020. But the incredible thing is that by the time we get to last Friday, which was August 14th, 2020, John Gee has now 
changed his tune, or at least he's revealing more to us than he has ever revealed in public, to my knowledge, about this specific issue of Olisham and Uli Sum. What he says is, in spite of the fact that all of these scholars are arguing about the correct location of this ancient city or place, Uli Sum, he thinks that none of them, repeat none of them, are the actual city mentioned, Olishem, in the book of Abraham. This was so incredible to me that John Gee, in a fit of honesty apparently, decided to spill the beans about his own personal feelings about Olishem not being an evidence for the book of Abraham, even though he tries to cover it with a fig leaf, which doesn't end up covering much, we'll get to that here in a second, that I felt I needed to do an entire episode on this subject. Now, it is one thing for a person to think that the evidence leads to a certain conclusion, and it's another thing for a person to represent how strong they believe that evidence is. People disagree about evidence all the time. They may agree on certain facts, they may disagree on certain facts, but even if people agree on the facts, you will frequently find people who are not persuaded by the facts and other people who look at those same facts and think they are much more persuasive than someone else might. We encounter that all the time. This is why there are hung juries in criminal cases and even in civil cases. Many times the jurors cannot agree on whether what is at issue in the trial that they're sitting on proves the case. Now, all 12 of these jurors have heard the exact same evidence. It is the evidence that has been presented to them in court. They are present for the entire trial. They all hear the same facts. They go back to deliberate. And frequently you will find some jurors do not believe that the proposition has been proven, while other jurors who have heard the exact same facts do feel that the proposition has been proven. So this happens all the time. It happens with people of good faith. It doesn't mean that someone is lying or being deceitful or disingenuous just because they think the facts establish something that another person disagrees with. So I want to be very careful with what I'm saying now because basically what I'm going to be doing is suggesting that John Gee has been for a long time disingenuous about his presentation of evidence. Not necessarily the facts themselves, although I think there's room for understanding him to be disingenuous in that regard as well, but he has been disingenuous as to the strength of the evidence that he has been proposing. And I typically would not go to such a strong conclusion because to me, that's a very strong conclusion to reach. I would much rather think that people are arguing different sides of an issue. They're both arguing in good faith, but maybe they just see things differently. That's the charitable explanation. That is the explanation that nine times out of 10 is going to be correct. And I would not be suggesting this about John Gee, except for the fact that last Friday on August 14th, 2020, he suddenly blurted out the fact that he does not think that the place name of Ulisum actually does match with the book of Abraham's Oli Shem. He still thinks that it's the same name, that you can still take Oli Shem in the book of Abraham and make it into Uli Sum in the old world, but he says he doesn't think it likely that the locations that have been proposed, even though there might be about six of them by now, for Uli Sum in the old world match the book of Abraham's Oli Shem. That's what's so explosive to my mind. 
Now, once again, I am going to get to that audio here in a few minutes so you can hear it with your own ears. But first off, let me explain why this is an issue and why it is that John Gee feels that this is not a match. He doesn't say why it is he feels it's not a match. I had to do additional research in other areas by other authors and other scholars in order to find out why it is that John Gee does not believe this is a match. And the first thing you have to know is the issue about the land of Ur. Now, there are two proposed locations for the land of Ur, or the city of Ur. One is in southern Mesopotamia, one is in northwest Mesopotamia, which is up by Syria. And scholars argue about which one is the correct Ur that is mentioned in the Bible in relation to Abraham. Now, John Gee cannot go and will not go with the southernmost Ur because there was never any Egyptian influence in the southernmost Ur. The Egyptians just never got that far any time during their long empire and their long history. But John Gee does believe that in this northernmost Ur, way up in the northwest corner of Mesopotamia, that there was a periodic Egyptian influence over the course of history at different times, and therefore he insists that that must be the correct Ur. The reason he insists that this must be the correct Ur is because the book of Abraham itself in chapter 1 says that in Ur of the Chaldees, there was an Egyptian influence. Remember, there is a priest of Pharaoh who is also the priest of Elkinah who is the one who is trying to sacrifice Abraham. And that's happening in Ur of the Chaldees. There must be an Egyptian influence there. And because of that, John Gee is forced to opt for the northwesternmost proposed city of Ur. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. There are only a limited number of times that even according to John Gee, there was any degree of Egyptian influence in this northernmost city of Ur. And he talks about that a little bit with Hannah Syriac in the April 30, 2020 interview at fair voice. And here he says that there are three times, but it's only the earliest time that could possibly even approach the time period during which Abraham could have lived. And he gives this as between 1860 and 1800 BCE. The next time he proposes is around the 1500s BCE. And then the third time is around 300 BCE. So those second two are way too late for Abraham. So it's got to be this one time between 1860 and 1800 when apparently the Egyptian ruler sent out some soldiers into this area according to John Gee and they were there for only maybe around 60 years from 1860 to 1800. Play the tape. When you look at when Egyptians are up there, there's really only three time periods before the time of Christ when you have Egyptians up in that area. And uh, the first of, or the earliest of those is between, in the Middle Kingdom reigns between Sesostris the second or third. Uh, unfortunately, we can't tell yet at this point which of those it is. Uh, and we may never know the inscriptions fragmentary. So one of the Sesostrises, um sent up an expedition and troops up into that area. And we have um, some archaeological evidence pointing to Amine, presence of Amenemhate the third there. With Amenemhate the fourth, that seems to disappear either during his reign or just after. Uh, again, we're not quite sure. So that's one time period. And so that's about um, 18, say, 60 to 1800 BC, roughly. The next time period is after the reign of Tutmosis II, 
Um, and this is in the 1500s BC, and the, there's a presence in that area until about 1200 BC during the Middle Kingdom. And then the third time period is in the Ptolemaic period, um, around, say, 250 to 200 BC, when Ptolemy III conquers Babylon. So those are three time periods when you got that. Um, and the closest one in to the traditional date of Abraham is the first one. And so it's really that detail from the book of Abraham, which um, drives both the time and the place. So there you have John Gee saying that it is because the book of Abraham mentions an Egyptian influence in the land of Ur that he therefore has to choose the northernmost Ur, even though that's disputed among scholars, and he has to choose the time period between 1860 and 1800 because that's the earliest time period when even a limited, potential, arguable influence of Egypt was present in northern or it drives the place and the time. And by the way, if you go back and listen to this interview, you will hear John Gee say that this puts him at odds with pretty much every other biblical scholar, which puts the time of Abraham prior to 2000 BC. So because of the book of Abraham, he's out of line with pretty much every other biblical scholar about the time period in which Abraham lived. And he's also out of line with many other scholars who believe that the candidate for Ur in southern Mesopotamia is the correct location of the city of Ur, as mentioned in the book of Genesis, as Abraham's hometown. So we can see that for John Gee, at least, it is the book of Abraham that drives the scholarship, not the scholarship that drives the book of Abraham. As John Gee puts it, the book of Abraham drives the time and the place. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you will note that this inscription that names the place of Ulisum was dated to 2250 BCE. And according to my math, that's 400 years earlier than John Gee places Abraham at Ur, the northernmost Ur of the Chaldees. So already we've got a time discrepancy of 400 years. Now, John Gee does not mention this, and I think he does not mention this because it detracts from the point he's trying to make or has been trying to make up until last Friday night, at least. But 400 years is a long time, even in the old world. In England, 400 years ago, Shakespeare had just finished writing all his plays and passed away. That's how long 400 years is. So we've got the name of a town or place name mentioned in an inscription dated to 2250 BCE. And so that you know, this is found in one of the Ebla tablets, which contains an inscription that boasts that the ruler Naram Sin had slain the cities Arman and Ibla, and from the Euphrates River to an Uli Sim. Alternatively, it is transliterated Uli Sim, Uli Sum, Uli Su or Ulis. I note that it is never transliterated, at least by non-Mormon scholars, as Oli Shem. So that is the inscription from 2250 approximately that mentions the name of a place, probably a town, probably a city, Uli Sim. And this is in a long list of cities that are conquered by this ruler. And so because it happens to sound a little bit like Oli Shem in the book of Abraham, it was seized upon in 1985 as a possible hit 
for the book of Abraham. So once again, getting back to the time problem, we've already talked about the word problem. It's sort of like Oli Shem, but Uli Sum is not a direct hit. You have to do some linguistic gymnastics, as I mentioned before, in order to transform Uli Sum into Oli Shem. It is also in the wrong time. It is 400 years too early for when John Gee places Abraham as living as recorded in the book of Abraham. Now, it is certainly possible that a city that existed in 2250 BCE could possibly still exist 400 years later, 860 to 800 BCE. But I have to admit, that's a bit of a stretch. 400 years is a long time, so it's not really the right name. It's not really the right time either. And what John Gee is going to admit last Friday night, August 14th, 2020, is that it's not the right place either. Now, once again, John Gee does not tell his audience why he does not believe it's in the right place. I had to do some research on the side to be able to put two and two together on this. And the reason why, simply put, is because the book of Abraham says that the plain of Oli Shem is in the land of Ur. In other words, Oli Shem or Uli Sum can't just be anywhere in the ancient Middle East. It has to be in the land of Ur. And John Gee knows it's not in the southern Ur, it's in the northwestern Ur. And therefore, this location of Oli Shem or Uli Sum has to be in close proximity to Ur. Otherwise, it cannot be, repeat, cannot be the Oli Shem that is mentioned in the book of Abraham. Now, let's look at the text of the book of Abraham and see how we get there. Once again, this is something that John Gee does not do for us, so we'll have to do it for ourselves. And this is a cross-reference between two verses in the book of Abraham. They're both in chapter 1. The first verse is verse 10, and the second is the first sentence of verse 20. Here is verse 10. Even the thank offering of a child did the priest of Pharaoh, see there's that Egyptian influence all over chapter 1 of the book of Abraham, even the thank offering of a child did the priest of Pharaoh offer upon the altar. And where was this altar located? Well, verse 10 goes on to tell us, which stood by the hill called Potiphar's Hill at the head of the plain of Oli Shem. That's where Oli Shem comes from. It's mentioned as a plain, not a city, not a village, but the plain of Oli Shem. Now, John Gee supposes that if a plain is named Oli Shem, it must be named after a nearby city. That much, I think, is speculation. I'm not sure that he's willing to go as far as to say that Potiphar's Hill has to be named after a nearby city called Potiphar because Potiphar is hopelessly anachronistic in this context, as Robert Rittner talked about in our 13-hour interview with him. But verse 10 is clear that the plain of Oli Shem is in close proximity to Potiphar's Hill. Once again, the hill called Potiphar's Hill at the head of the plain of Oli Shem. Now go to verse 20 and you'll see verse 20 places Potiphar's Hill in the land of Ur. This is what it says. Behold, Potiphar's Hill was in the land of Ur of Chaldea, period. That's the end of the first sentence of verse 20. It could not be more clear that Potiphar's Hill is located in the land of Ur and therefore because verse 10 puts Potiphar's hill at the head of the plain of Olishem, and Potiphar's hill is in the land of Ur, then the plain of Olishem must also be in the land of Ur, right next to Potiphar's hill. So what is clear to me is that even though John Gee does not state this, that any of the proposed locations that scholars are currently arguing about for the location of Ulisum, none of them, None of them are sufficiently close enough to the northernmost Ur, which John Gee favors and must claim to be the Ur mentioned in the book of Abraham, as we talked about earlier. None of these proposed locations for Ulisum are anywhere near 
this northernmost Ur. If they were, John Gee is the one person who by hook or by crook would make it fit. But because even John Gee says it is unlikely that any of the proposed locations for Ulisum are the correct location mentioned in the Book of Abraham, it is clear to me that none of them are anywhere near the northernmost Ur, such as to be considered to be in the land of Ur as required by the Book of Abraham. Now at this point I've been teasing you long enough about this audio clip, so I'm going to play this audio clip from the interview that went up at Pearl of Great Price Central last Friday night, and here's John Gee finally coming clean about the fact that John Gee himself does not think that Ulisum is the same place that is mentioned in the Book of Abraham. Here it is. Pay close attention. This one is for the record books. Play the tape. Uh, what new things have we learned about the Book of Abraham as scholars, as scholars have looked at it closely? So what have we learned through, what are some of the new things we've learned through scholarship on the Book of Abraham? Well, uh, a lot of them have to deal with historical authenticity. So, so looking at some of the names, uh, there's a, a place that's mentioned in Abraham 110, uh, Olishem. And this is actually uh, John Lundquist back in, I think it was the 1970s, noticed that this is an actual place name. And it was attested in one inscription by Rim Sin. Uh, just this year, a new inscription of Rim Sin's mentioning Olishem also showed up. And there's been, uh, if you look at this place in the, in the scholarly literature among the cuneiform specialists, there's a lot written on it. Um, and, but this is an actual place name and we they debate about exactly where you're going to find it and archaeologists debate and so some one of them said yeah I think I've discovered it and another one says no I don't think you did and these are both archaeologists on the same dick <laughs> they're they're uh, teammates but they don't agree on that interpretation they, they, they literally don't even agree on where they're digging on, on the name of it. The least. name of it, well, that's because they haven't found the name. They know the, they know the site they're digging, and one of them says, I think it's this place, and the other one says, no, I think it's this place that's mentioned in the literature. And, um, and, but if they do find the place, and you've got, actually got an archaeological site, what does this tell you about, um, about the Book of Abraham. So while I was cautiously optimistic when this first came out, and although I don't think that they've, I, I think it's unlikely that, it, that that's the correct location. The mere fact that you've got a location and learning about that particular location let me see certain things about the text of the Book of Abraham that I hadn't seen before. Um, because this site is located on a plain. So in the Book of Abraham it talks about this being on the plains of Olishem. 
and it's the largest mound on that plane. Now, the, maybe the plane is not the right plane, but thinking about it is, if we're looking for it, we should be probably looking for a plane that has a very large mound in it that serves as the, the largest city in the area and dominating the other cities and that those planes are named after it because it is the largest location there. And I wouldn't have been thinking along those lines if I hadn't had to confront the archeological arguments that were made. And even if I am less inclined to think that they're accurate right now, that that's the right place, it's still going to be something like it. And, and so even in this case, uh, what may be a false clue is still useful in, in understanding the text and seeing it as a real place. So not once, but twice does John Gee actually state that he does not think it likely that any of the proposed locations for Ulisum are the Olishem mentioned in the Book of Abraham. They are all in the wrong place. None of them are close enough to northernmost Ur to make it match the Book of Abraham. So what does this mean? What this means to me is that this is not something that John Gee just stumbled upon last Friday night. This is something that John Gee has known about for many, many years. I mean, the northernmost location of Ur hasn't changed in decades. The different proposed locations for Ulisum have not changed in decades. John Gee has known about these locations for literally decades, and he has known that none of the proposed locations for Ulisum are close enough to Ur in the north to be a viable candidate for Oli Shem in the Book of Abraham. And yet, and yet, every time that I can tell when John Gee is asked, what are the strongest evidences for the Book of Abraham? Boom, first or second out of the chute is going to come the plains of Olishem. Why does he do that? Why does he cite to Olishem as an evidence for the book of Abraham when he knows that it is not an evidence for the book of Abraham, when even in his own personal opinion, the Ulisums that have been proposed do not match the plain of Olishem mentioned in the book of Abraham? And this is where we get to the nub of the matter. The reasonable answer to me is that John Gee even though he knows and personally believes that Book of Abraham, Olishem, is not Ulisum as proposed by all these different scholars, he is nevertheless willing to put it forward as an evidence of the Book of Abraham. He knows it's not an evidence of the Book of Abraham, but he's willing to put it forward as an evidence of the Book of Abraham anyway. And once again, John Gee is the one who was responsible for putting Olishem as a proof of the Book of Abraham in the church essay on the book of Abraham. And it is likely because of John Gee's penchant to do this over and over again that accounts for why it is that Daniel C. Peterson cites to it in 2012 in the Deseret News as an evidence for the book of Abraham and why it is that Michael Ash cites to it in 2016 in his interview with Fair Mormon as an evidence for the book of Abraham. 
And so personally, me as an apologist for many, many years throughout the 1980s and beyond and being very aware of the repeated usage of Olishem as an evidence for the book of Abraham, I now listened to John Gee last Friday night in this interview and I am absolutely floored. I cannot believe that the one individual, the Egyptologist, who has made this evidence of the book of Abraham so popular and so widespread among apologetic circles is now actually coming clean and saying, eh, I don't really think it's an evidence at all. It's as if he's been saying for the past decades that Ulisum is the wrong name, it's in the wrong time, and it's in the wrong place, but other than that, it's a bullseye. <laughs> but this isn't the only time that John Gee has been caught over-inflating the strength of the evidence beyond what he really believes personally the evidence shows. Recently, he published an article in The Interpreter, a journal of Mormon thought. In that article, he argues that Joseph Smith got not one, not two, not three, but all four of the names of the idolatrous gods of Pharaoh, in facsimile one, correct. Now, somehow, John Gee manages to write an entire article on the subject with 119 footnotes and never once gets around to mentioning what the Egyptians actually called these four sons of Horus. But nevertheless, in his conclusion, he argues that the odds of Joseph Smith getting all four of them right, which he proclaims to have just done in his paper, I mean, that's why he wrote the whole paper in the first place, he proclaims that the odds are astronomical. In fact, he says that the odds of Joseph Smith getting all four of these names right is equivalent to winning the Powerball three weeks in a row. And Hannah Syriac, the interviewer at the Fair Voice podcast that went up on July 30th, 2020, is very taken with this article and asks John Gee about it because she wants him to expatiate on this incredible article, this incredible proof, this proof beyond a reasonable doubt, this proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that John Gee has just written and published in The Interpreter to prove that the book of Abraham is true. And amazingly, Amazingly, John Gee's response is not to launch into a discussion about his paper and to once again repeat how it proves conclusively the book of Abraham is true. No, instead, he backs off. He backs way off. And instead of talking about his paper, instead he starts talking about how we're not really here to prove the book of Abraham is true. We're just trying to create plausibility plausibility for the idea that maybe it could be true. Well, this is definitely not, repeat not, what John Gee did in his paper. He proved it was true beyond any shadow of a doubt, but now all of a sudden he's backing off and wanting just to say, oh, it's plausible. This is another instance, I think, in the Interpreter article where John Gee is puffing up the evidence far above and beyond what it is that he really thinks the evidence shows. What he really thinks the evidence shows is plausibility, at least on the Fair Voice podcast with Hannah Syriac. But when he writes it, no, this is proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. Here's the audio clip from the interview with Hannah Syriac so you can hear what it is I'm talking about. Play the tape. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And I found your article in the Interpreter Foundation's journal really quite compelling. It was one of my favorite reads. Um, could you speak a little bit about what you said about the four idolatrous gods in that article? Oh, the four idolatrous. Well, um, so let's um, back up and, and talk a little bit about, um, so scholarship can't prove that a document is historically authentic. They can prove that it's not authentic, but they can't prove that it is authentic. And people come in with artifacts to me all the time and want me to authenticate them. 
And the best that I can do is say that this is consistent with an authentic artifact. I can't say that it is authentic. But I can also, but I can point out uh, this is a forgery, or this is a modern reproduction, or something like that. And uh, and they're always a little disappointed when I do that, but that's what scholarship does. You can either say this is consistent with authentic, but you can't say that it is authentic um, when somebody just brings you in this artifact. And that goes with, with so if you bring it to text like the Book of Abraham, we didn't discover this on archaeological dig. Um, we don't have the original text to test it on. All we can say is, is it a, a con, is it consistent with uh, an authentic document and with material from that time and place? So what we're not establishing is, is we're not establishing historical authenticity. We're establishing historical plausibility. This fits in with that. So that's the basis on which this article deals, where I look at are the names of the various gods in the book of Abraham, do they match with the time and place of Abraham? And that's a little hard to do because we have very little material from Abraham's time and place. There is a dispute about where, where to put Abraham both in time and place. And because my viewpoint isn't what most biblical scholars would say on it, and it's not that I don't have my reasons for it, but I generally have to lay those out briefly at the beginning of any time I talk about it, is to say, this is where I place Abraham in time and in space so that we can know what it is we're comparing it with. So there are biblical scholars who would place Abraham in southern Mesopotamia before 2000 BC. And that's their time and place. And so if you're looking for comparable material, you're looking at or three economic texts that are written in Sumerian and other material from that area. I place Abraham in a different time and place, so I'm looking at different material. Okay, that's enough of that. But you can see that John Gee is doing anything but saying that his article proves that the book of Abraham is true the way he does in the article itself. Now, let me go to that article so I can show you that I'm not making this up. This article written by John Gee went up on The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, on July 17th, 2020. That is 13 days before July 30th when the interview with Hannah Syriac first appeared. So less than two weeks before this interview. This is what John Gee is writing in his article titled The Four Idolatrous Gods in the Book of Abraham. First, at the top of the article, in the abstract, here's what's written. Although unknown as deities in Joseph Smith's day, the names of four associated idolatrous gods, Elkanah, Libnah, Mamakra, and Korash, mentioned in the Book of Abraham, are attested anciently. Two of them are known to have connections with the practices attributed to them in the book of Abraham. Now get this, the last line of the abstract at the top of the paper. The odds of Joseph Smith guessing the names correctly is astronomical. So he spends the entire paper showing how Joseph Smith got these names correctly. And this is what he writes in his conclusion, the final paragraph of his paper. What are the odds of Joseph Smith guessing right? He asks. 
Then John Gee goes through a number of mathematical calculations and then writes, in conclusion, that his calculations give us, quote, a very rough estimate of the chance of randomly putting together syllables into four correct ancient deities' names of 1 in 6.62 times 10 to the 22nd. These are the odds that John Gee calculates are the odds of Joseph Smith getting these names right just by luck, 6.62 times 10 to the 22nd. He then states this, quote, By comparison, the odds of winning the Powerball lottery by buying a single ticket are merely, merely 1 in 292 million, or 2.92 times 10 to the 6th power. The odds of winning the Powerball lottery two weeks in a row are 1 in 8.52 times 10 to the 16th. That's still lower than the odds he's calculated for Joseph Smith getting all four of these names right. And so then he states the odds of winning three weeks in a row are 1 in 2.49 times 10 to the 25th power. Though only a crude calculation at the odds, it gives some idea how difficult it would be for Joseph Smith to simply guess correctly. So there, John Gee is setting forth in his paper that was published July 17, 2020, an absolute slam dunk proof beyond any shadow of a doubt that Joseph Smith did not guess correctly, but actually this is a home run for the Book of Abraham. And yet when he's asked this specific question about his article by Hannah Syriac in the interview 13 days later on July 30th, suddenly he's all hemming and hawing and backing and filling and talking about we're not arguing for actual authenticity, we're just arguing for plausibility. I suggest this is another instance where John Gee has intentionally and knowingly overstated his case for the evidence for the Book of Abraham in the pages of the Interpreter Journal. So in this interview with Hannah Syriac, John Gee begs off talking about his interpreter article about the four sons of Horus, which proves conclusively the case that the Book of Abraham is authentic, and instead starts talking about Olishem, of all things, which a couple of weeks later in another interview, he's going to admit he doesn't even believe is a hit for the Book of Abraham. And then he starts talking about Shiniha. He goes to Shiniha. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Shinaha. Um, there's this term Shinaha in, in Abraham chapter 3, which is said to be the sun. That occurs as a term in Egyptian astronomy for the path of the sun around, uh, which is what we would call the ecliptic, but it's the path of the sun across the sky. And it's attested from the time of the pyramids until Abraham's day. And soon after that, disappears from Egyptian literature. And so, so this is an attested term, uh, Egyptian term, and it shows up in the Book of Abraham, in the sort of in the as an Egyptian astronomical term, and it's used in the Book of Abraham. That's a remarkable thing to try to pluck out of. Uh, uh, out of the air and then have it validated. And we heard from Robert Rittner that shiny ha never appears in Egyptian. What John Gee appears to have done is take two words that are nominally Egyptian that never appear together as a single word in Egyptian that in the Egyptian corpus are never found even within 10 words of each other in Egyptian. But he's taken a piece from here and a piece from there. He stuck them together 
But even then, it doesn't mean sun. Remember, shiny hot in the book of Abraham is interpreted as meaning sun, i.e. the sun in the sky, S-U-N. But according to Robert Rittner, it means the path of eternity or something like that. Well, the path of eternity now in this new word that John Gay has created, he interprets it as the ecliptic of the sun, i.e. the path that the sun takes across the sky. And from the ecliptic of the sun, now because it has sun in it, he goes from the ecliptic or the path of the sun to the sun itself. So these are the steps that John Gee has to go through to make shiny ha in the book of Abraham end up meaning sun. You can see he has to go through at least four steps of separation in order to make his match work. It's as if John Gee is playing six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Now the idea of that game, in case you don't know, is that basically anybody in Hollywood, whether they're actors or directors or screenwriters or whatever, can be linked to Kevin Bacon within six degrees of connection. So it's called six degrees of separation. For example, you could probably get within six degrees of separation between Kevin Bacon and let's say Oprah Winfrey. And you could say Kevin Bacon was in this movie, which had this director who was over here directing this movie, which had an actor in it. And this actor in another movie may have appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show. That's how it's played. And this is what it reminds me of when John Gee comes up with Shiny Ha as a hit for the book of Abraham. Now, the game of six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon is a fun game to play. But when John Gee concludes that the sun means Shiny Ha, in the book of Abraham, what he's done is made the critical mistake of concluding that Oprah Winfrey is Kevin Bacon. Nobody playing the game six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon would make that mistake. And yet when it comes to the book of Abraham, that's exactly what I see John Gee as doing. He's not playing six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. John Gee is playing six degrees of separation from Shiny Ha. And once again, I think it shows that John Gee does not know Shiny Ha from Shinola. And this is not a very strong evidence for the book of Abraham. And yet, and yet, John Gee is going to go to Olishem in his interview with Hannah Syriac as an evidence for the book of Abraham. He's going to go to Shiniha as an evidence for the book of Abraham. And he's never once going to even mention this paper that he just wrote and was just published at the interpreter about the four sons of Horus, even though Hannah Syriac prompts him about this paper and says it was one of her favorite reads. Now, if I'm John Gee and I've just written a paper that proves that the book of Abraham is authentic and it proves it to such a degree that the odds are equal to winning the Powerball three weeks in a row according to what John Gee writes there, that's the first thing I'm going to mention when Hannah Syriac asks me on July 30th, 2020, this is just a couple weeks ago, that's the first thing I'm going to mention when Hannah Syriac asks me what the strongest evidences are in favor of the book of Abraham. I'm going to mention it first. I'm going to mention it last. I'm going to mention it everything in between because this closes the case. It proves it beyond any shadow of a doubt. If the odds really are as high as what John Gee is presenting in this paper, I would never spend my time talking about weak evidences such as shiny ha and an evidence such as Olishem that we now know even John Gee doesn't believe is a bullseye. So what this leads me to conclude is that when John Gee writes in his paper that the odds of Joseph Smith getting the names of the four idolatrous gods correct are astronomical and so great that it's the same as the odds of winning the Powerball three weeks in a row, what it tells me is John Gee doesn't believe what he's writing. 
If he did believe it, that would have been first out of the gate. It would always be first out of the gate in any interview done after the publication of that paper. That's all I would be talking about. He wouldn't be talking about Oli Shem that he doesn't even believe in. He wouldn't be talking about Shiny Haw, which is six degrees from Kevin Bacon. He would be talking about his paper that proves the Book of Abraham true, hands down, case closed, it's over. And once again, what I am suggesting here, what I am suggesting is that in the same way that John Gee has been shining us on about Oli Shem for decades, or should I say, shiny hawing us on about Oli Shem for decades, he is also shining us on about how strong he thinks the evidence is of Joseph Smith getting the names of the canopic figures correct in the book of Abraham. I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that he's being disingenuous about thinking there are connections. Now, he may be. I can't read his mind. I'm saying that even if he does legitimately and actually believe that Joseph Smith did get those four names correct, when he writes in the conclusion of his paper that the odds of this are astronomical, John Gee is presenting a conclusion that he knows is not true, that he does not even believe himself. And so, ultimately, based upon all this evidence which I have produced from John Gee and John Gee's sources, I'm not going to Robert Rittner's opinion for this. I'm not going to anybody else's opinion for this. I'm going strictly by what John Gee has written and what he has said himself. I think based upon this record, it is probably wise to be extremely cautious about taking anything that John Gee says related to the book of Abraham and its connections to the ancient world at face value. Because it appears that John Gee will say and write things related to book of Abraham apologetics that even he does not believe are true. And so that's about all for tonight. If you like what you're hearing here at Radio Free Mormon, please go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution today. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contribution will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Up down got its hustlers. Bowery got his bumps. 42nd Street got Big Jim Walker. He a bull shooting son of a gun. Yeah, he's big and dumb as a man can come. But he's stronger than a country house. And when the bad folks all get together at night, you know they all call Big Jim Ball just because. And they say you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't around with Jim I don't do that I did didn't did did what out of South Alabama come a country boy said I'm looking for a man named Jim I am a bull shooting boy my name is Willie McCoy but down at home they call me Slim hey I'm looking for the king of 42nd Street he drive on a drop top Cadillac last week he took all my money and it may sound funny but I come to get my money back
Got it too. 